How is everybody? All right. We're in Daniel chapter 3 this evening, continuing in Daniel chapter 3, our verse-by-verse series through the book of Daniel. We'll begin at verse 13 tonight. Let's have another word of prayer before we get started. Lord, thank you for tonight and for the life that you've given us and the measure of health and strength that uh, each of us have had to be able to gather here uh, tonight. Lord, we always want to thank you and praise you for the fact that we live in a free country where we can gather openly and uh, proudly with excitement, proclaiming to our friends and neighbors and to our neighborhood here that we love you, that you're our king, and that uh, we serve you, Lord. It seems like we're seeing a lot more headlines popping up about uh, the government in China squeezing on the house churches and trying to force them uh, to honor them rather than you and uh, trying to take away some of their songs and take away crosses and those sorts of things. We pray for the persecuted church around the world, so many Christians who have to put their lives on the line every day just to be a Christian. And uh, Lord, we don't know what that's like. We could only hear about it or read about it. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would grow our compassion and our, uh, and our uh, grace towards uh, persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Lord, if there's some way that we as individuals or a church or just the church in America can get more involved or better involved in helping uh, in those situations, we pray that you would direct us and guide us. In the meantime, Lord, for the so many Christians who uh, do have to face real opposition, violent opposition for their faith, we pray that you would strengthen them, uh, give them hope to endure, and Lord, that you would be doing great and mighty things in their midst, and that their oppressors and their captors would be seeing what kind of God you are, and that they would be turning to you, laying down their arms and joining the ranks of Christians. We know you do do that, Lord, around the world. We pray that you would do it more and more. And Lord, we just thank you for your word and how you've sent it to us, delivered it to us so that we can not only understand this world and our place in it, but so we can understand you, an infinite God who has condescended to reveal himself and uh, show himself uh, to the people of earth and to show himself strong on our behalf. What a good and awesome God you are. As we study this, familiar story, Lord, we pray that it would invigorate our thinking. Uh, Nothing that I'm going to say is all that important, Lord, but your word is alive and powerful. We pray that it would do its work tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's a question for everybody. What is your idea of a great vacation? What's your idea of, if you could just have a great vacation, money's no object, what would be on the list or the itinerary? Some people want to sit on a beach and do nothing. Others want to stay busy with a lot of activities on their vacations. Some people want to see famous cities like Rome or Paris. Others imagine a remote wilderness high on a mountain somewhere. I know something that probably didn't make anyone's list, and that's the experience of over 160 guests at a five-star, quote, end quote, five-star hotel in the Dominican Republic back in 2013. So there these guests were experiencing a pricey vacation, And then the hotel started running simultaneously with their visit a very cheap, all-inclusive package for locals only, and they sent the word out. Well, hundreds and hundreds of locals showed up, 
and immediately got hammered drunk. And it was reported they ate all the food in the restaurant, started destroying things around the resort, defecated in the pool, and urinated on sunbathing guests. Five days into this experience, uh, vacationer Tony Walton, who had paid $15,000 for his family to go on this trip, he had been complaining, and he was told, well, you can be moved to another hotel for (laughs) $2,000. He then organized a two-day sit-in protest with 100 other guests at the hotel. They were eventually transported to another spot and given a reimbursement of $40. (laughs) Not my idea of a vacation. I don't know if that was on anybody else's list. Now, bad vacations are no fun while you're on them, but they usually make for a good story once you're back, right? Probably everybody here has a story of a bad sort of vacation or a bad day away or something like that. And now you look back and you kind of laugh, and that was crazy. I got so sick, or this happened or that happened. Well, we have before us this evening one of the great stories of the Old Testament. It started off uh, not so great for the guys in the story. It's a story of faith and triumph, of God's glory and deliverance. But, you know, before we dive in, let me ask you this. What's your idea of deliverance? You know, the idea of God intervening and saving and delivering his people, it's obviously central to our faith as Christians, right? I mean, our God's a deliverer. It's, it's a central idea. It's even part of what we call the Lord's Prayer found in the Gospels. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so how would you define deliverance if someone was asking you, or I'm asking you, how do you define being delivered by God? In our text... God's faithful servants were in some real trouble. There at the great dedication service of Nebuchadnezzar's blasphemous statue, they refused to bow in worship, and now they faced immediate public execution. They're confident that the Lord is going to intervene and deliver them. They say so, and he does, but probably not in the way we would hope for had we been in the situation. Here's what God's idea of deliverance was that day. They would stand there seemingly alone before the most powerful and, at the time, the most angry man in all the world. They'd be sentenced to die a terrifying death, thrown into the blazing fire. And then when all is said and done, they're going to be back where they started, working for that very same man who tried to burn them alive, alongside a bunch of hater co-workers who wanted them dead. That was God's idea of deliverance in this story. One of the most famous stories of the Old Testament say, and where we say God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's how God delivered them, by allowing them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. So the Lord's deliverance, I would say, wasn't made to order, right? If you go to, which one, at Burger King is, have it your way, right? Make your hamburger to order. You don't really go in and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to smash the bun up. I want you to way overcook the meat, kind of drop it on the floor for a little bit. Don't wrap it up right and go ahead and spit in there too. That's how I'd like it to order. Well, when we're in a time of difficulty or suffering or oppression or trial, this is not really the order of deliverance that we pray for, right? If I'm in a time where I feel like I need to be delivered by the Lord, I don't usually pray, and Lord, send me into the fire before you deliver me out of it. And so the Lord's deliverance wasn't really made to order from the human perspective, but as we all know, his deliverance was much more glorious because of how he worked in and through these men that day. And so we're going to begin in verse 13 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have just been singled out by their co-workers for refusing to worship the statue there on the plain of Dura. Verse 13. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar is as mad as a person can be. With the whole of his empire's leadership gathered together, we saw that last week, he had been defied by these three Hebrew captives who refused to obey, uh, to obey a relatively simple command, right? The simple command was, when the, when the music starts playing, everybody get down and bow. And there on the plain of Dura, three figures were standing straight up. It was a huge black eye for his pride. Everybody's there. We saw this last week. Everybody from the farthest reaches of his empire are there. Every governmental level, every academic, every intellectual, every person of power, every person of influence, and there he's being defied. For all his fury in this moment, it seems like he was at least trying to restrain his anger. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was a nut job, and so I kind of want to point this out. He gives them a second chance. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's not a second chance kind of guy usually, but he gives them a second chance to bow. And and we're told later in the text that when they refuse again to his face, it says his face changes toward them for the worse. So he's trying to keep it together. It would seem that he liked these guys, right? And I think that's in line with what we've read so far in the testimony of the book. Uh, he had worked closely with them from some time. They had stood out as ten times better than all the other wise men in all the realm, just like Daniel. And like Daniel, they had no doubt found favor in his eyes. And so uh, there's no way that they were strangers to him at this point. In fact, they probably had a pretty good relationship. They were overseeing all the affairs of the province of Babylon, the capital city where the palace was and all of that. And so uh, he's trying his best to keep it together, but guys like Nebuchadnezzar can't keep it together for long. Now, verse 15 closes with a line that brings a smile to our face when we read it, right? Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I mean, we love reading that as students of the Bible. We get excited. It's like in any movie when one character says, oh yeah, you and what army? Uh, if you hear that line in a movie, right, you know something awesome's about to go down. Uh, and, and so we read that and we get all excited. But we're getting a look here into what Nebuchadnezzar really thought about religion, what he really thought about spirituality. I mean, he was a pagan, you know, polytheist weirdo, but we get a real glimpse into what he really thought here. As far as he was concerned, he, as an individual man, was more powerful and more in charge than any god on the books, near or far. He's a who's the god? And he's including his own Babylonian gods. He's like, yeah, no, no, no God can save you from me. Not your God, not my God, not any of these gods that anybody's ever heard of. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in power. I'm the one that's holding your life in my hands. In fact, we're going to see later on that his pride is ultimately what will bring God's judgment on him. In the following chapter, he gives a testimony of uh, what goes down in his personal life. And he talks about his incredible pride, his incredible arrogance, and how the Lord says, Okay, we're, we're all through here. I'm going to judge you for your pride. But he's so proud. I mean, this is way beyond John Lennon's, I think we're more famous than Jesus thing. He says, you know, I'm greater than any God that you've ever heard of. And what are you guys going to do about it? 
Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew something that Nebuchadnezzar did not know. That they weren't really in his hands. No, they were safely held in the hands of their God. They would have remembered that the strong arm of the Lord carried the Israelites in the wilderness as a man carries his son. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 1. They would have known that. They were good Hebrew boys who had all of this information in their heads. More recently, Isaiah the prophet had shared this message from God to the Jews. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And so that's what they knew. They said, you know what? You can say all you want, but we know who actually is holding us in the palm of his hands and it's the God of heaven. Now these tender promises aren't only for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course, they're for you and I as well. Jesus said this in John 10, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's you and I who are in the hand of the Father. The Lord holds us and leads us and lifts us by his hand. Verse 16 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Wow, this is a pretty remarkable response. While they maintain an attitude of humility and respect, they say, you know, we don't really need to answer what you just said. We don't really have to talk to you about this. This is the guy who just said, I'm about to murder you for not obeying me, right? And they're not saying this out of smugness. It's not because they had some secret knowledge of what was about to happen. They didn't know what was about to happen. They're going to say as much in just a moment here. But they're not being smug. They're not being jerks. They don't have secret knowledge that nobody else has. It's simply that they had a firm confidence, a real living hope in God, and so they were not shaken. You know, these three guys, this is really the only story we have about them. They're connected to Daniel in some of the earlier passages. But after this, that's it, right? But these guys in Daniel, what we're seeing there is that their faith really operated. If their faith was a machine, it wasn't turned off and out of fuel and dusty in a corner somewhere. I mean, it was the thing that was keeping their lives going. That was what was operating their lives day in and day out. And so they get in this situation. We talked about this last week. And they say, yeah, we don't even have a choice to make here. Of course we're not going to bow to this idol. We don't even have to think about it because we're servants of the Most High God. And now they're right here in front of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He's just threatened, uh, threatened their lives afresh. And they're thinking, yeah, we don't even have to answer you about this. Because the whole of our lives is about the sort of machinery and the growth of our relationship with our God. That's all that matters. That's all that we're about. I mean, we have all of these regular things in our daily life. And we show up to work and we, we do our work for you, Nebuchadnezzar. And we do our studies and we do all this other stuff. But, hey, you know what? We're not shaken because we know that the Lord lives. And we have a living hope. We have a real confidence in him. And that's what fuels our decisions. That's what fuels our emotions. That's what directs our attitudes. And they continue in verse 17. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And so they say, even if God chooses not to save us, we will not bow. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is what Job said in his book, his famous line. And when I was thinking about this, I was realizing this is a great mindset, not just for our faith and the way we should live, but, you know, this is a great mindset for our prayer lives, too. Sometimes we struggle with, oh, how am I, how am I supposed to pray in this situation or in that circumstance? Am I asking too little? Am I asking too much? How do I pray? Even the disciples, what did they do? They went to Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And I, this is a great mindset, I think, for our prayer lives, where we know what God is capable of, and we expect him to intervene and to act and to deliver according to his purposes. And we should ask for him to do all of those things, to do astounding things, to blow everybody's mind, to bend the course of nature and time and all of these things towards his purposes and say, hey, Lord, intervene, work a miracle, do all of these things and more, more than we could ask or imagine. But if he doesn't do what we are hoping for or asking for, okay, we proceed all the same. That doesn't change anything about how we pray or how we live or how we love God. That's the idea that we're seeing here. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it made no difference whether they lived or died that day. Now, when you say that or out loud, it, that sounds strange that their faith in God would be the same whether he saved them or not from the fire. But then we step back and think about what we know to be true. Okay, I know that God loves us and that we love him. We know that he knows us, that he knows all things, that he is full of goodness and full of grace toward us. And so since I know those things to be true, I can abound in hope despite my circumstances, just like these guys did. And I can commit my ways to him walking by faith and realize from the testimony of Scripture that he may lead me out of a storm, that'd be great. He may lead me through a storm, that'd be great too. He may lead me into a storm, not my favorite. But no matter which way he leads me, he's always good and he's always right and I can trust him. And so I love what these three guys say. They say, hey, you know what? We don't know if God's going to lead us to death or to life to the fire, through the fire, out of the fire. We don't know, but we know that we trust the Lord. Whatever it is, he's right. And whatever it is, he's good. And we're going to go with him wherever he leads us. Now notice too, before we move on, in what might have been their last few moments alive, and they knew it, they took the opportunity to preach. That's a great, great instructor to us. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known to you. They wanted to be very clear. They wanted it to be very, very uh, specific to them. He said, hey, hey, man, right before you kill us, we've got something to say. And here's what we've got to say. We're not going to try to save our own lives. We're not going to try to necessarily explain ourselves. We just want you to know about our God, how great he is, and how he's the only God worth, worth serving. Yeah, I'm not going to bow to your God. You know why? Because there's only one God. And let me tell you about him. I've only got a few words left before you explode in anger and have me burned alive. But I want you to know about God. That's a great testimony of faithfulness. In verse 19, and Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. I guess so. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their other garments. They were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, we know the end of the story, of course, but we have to come to terms with the fact that this right here, these verses, was God's idea of deliverance that day. Really? 
hey, this is your big idea, Lord? <laughs> if you want to get fire involved, how about some fire from heaven to consume our enemies here? Hey, Lord, if you want to get some fire involved, how about a fiery chariot to swoop in and save us at the last second? That's kind of the fire I'm a buyer at, right? Uh, but no, the Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to throw all he could as fast as he could at them. And, uh, and he said, yeah, you guys are going in. You're going to fall down bound into the midst of this furnace. One commentary pointed out that Nebuchadnezzar was so angry he wasn't thinking straight. That's clear from his hasty order, of course, which cost the lives of his SEAL Team 6 there. But as the author also noted, in this senseless rage, Nebuchadnezzar overdid himself. By heating the furnace seven times hotter than usual, he would actually be decreasing the length of their torment rather than prolonging it. But what are you going to do? You're insane with rage. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Oh, true, O king. Everyone on the platform was quick to give a, Yes, sir, absolutely, sir, as soon as he started talking again to the maniac on the throne there. Verse 25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now scholars are quick to point out that the text is more accurately translated as the fourth uh, the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods, right? So Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have had an understanding of the anointed Messiah, the son of God from, you know, our perspective. We understand that vernacular. Uh, he wouldn't have. And so the declaration there we read in the New King James is perhaps uh, better worded by saying a son of the gods. But either way, here's what's clear. It's clear that Nebuchadnezzar identified a divine presence there alongside these three men. He, he looked in there, he said, there's four guys in there, and one of those guys is divine. One of those guys is a god of some kind. Uh, and we recognize this as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that it was a run-of-the-mill angel, right? But more likely and more fittingly, it's the Lord himself there walking with his servants. Now, notice that this portion of the story is told from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, We'll get no report from inside the furnace. It's one of those great times where you're like, why don't we get that? <laughs> why don't you tell us what went down inside the furnace? What did you talk about in there? What was happening in there? But no, we get no report. The firsthand experience, their talk with the Lord, that will never get recounted for us here. Instead, we see what it looks like from the outside. Everybody watching this unfold that day saw that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, he walks with his people in their sufferings. That they are not defined by fear, but by faith and by trust and by expectation. It would have been a very dramatic scene to behold. While our circumstances are significantly different from what we're reading here, I don't think anybody's life was threatened because of their faith in Christ, probably today, right? Our circumstances are different. But you know, God is the same. And God still wants to operate this way in your life. He wants to reveal his work and his presence through the days of your life to the world, to the people around you. Whatever sphere of influence you're in, whatever group you find yourself in, God wants to work through you to reveal himself so that the people from the outside are looking at your life and saying, I see a divine presence there. I see the Son of God walking with that person right there. And they might not understand all of it. Well, that's why you're there, to preach to them. Not only to demonstrate the power of God and the work of God, but then to explain it to them, right? As we saw, Nebuchadne or saw the three guys preaching to Nebuchadnezzar. 
But this is what the Lord wants to do. He wants to reveal his work and his presence through your life. Remember when Moses came down the mountain shining from God's glory. Remember the disciples there before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. They had been talking to the Sanhedrin and they spoke with such boldness and such confidence that these unbelieving religious scholars turned to each other and they said, well, these guys have been with Jesus, obviously. I mean, that's what God wants to do in your life and mine. He wanted to do it with Moses. He wanted to do it with these three guys. He wanted to do it with the disciples in the book of Acts. This is what God does. This is his idea. He wants to work in your life so that people looking at you see, well, there's the Lord. Here's the kind of God he is. Here's the kind of work that he does. And here's the kind of life that his people can live as a result of it. Verse 26 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the administrators, governors, the king's counselors gathered together. They saw that these men on, whom, uh, on whose bodies the fire had no power, the hair of their head was not singed, nor were the garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. You know what my favorite part is about all of this is that we realize here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have left the furnace any time they wanted. What does the king say? Does he say, get some ropes and pull those guys out? He says, hey, come on out, you guys. And then they walk out. And you know what that means? That means they didn't walk out when they could have. We don't know how much time transpired here, but they fell down. They're bound, right? They fall down bound. Next thing we know, they're walking around in the fire. Next thing we know, they could leave the furnace when he says, come on out of the furnace, which means they willfully chose to stay in the furnace and hang out in the flames, walking around, talking to each other, doing stuff. I think that's my favorite part of this whole thing. Now, perhaps the Lord had instructed them to wait and say, hey, hold, hold on until he calls you out. This is going to be some fun. We don't really know. Or maybe they were thinking, who cares about this fire? We're with the Son of God right now. What do I care if there's fire? I'm not burning. I'm not, I'm not even hot. And look, there's the Son of God. Let's talk to that guy. Let's get near that guy. Who knows what they were thinking? But if you could relive this story, wouldn't you rather be in the fire with Jesus than just watching from outside? Of course you would. If you knew the story, you'd be like, yeah, get me in there. Reminds me of when Peter says, hey, we're in the middle of the storm, we're about to sink, but how about I walk on the water out to Jesus? I just want to be with Jesus. Now, that maybe wasn't the best choice for Peter at the time. The Lord wanted to come to the boat and get things going there, but there's that drive. I don't care what else is going on. I just want to be with the Lord. And I think we see that here. They could have left the furnace anytime they wanted, and yet they waited. They just hung out in there. When the king calls them, they head out. I wonder if they lingered for a moment or two. But once they were out... We see they were totally, miraculously preserved. The ropes that bound them had burned away, but nothing else was affected on any level. Not their bodies, not their clothes. They even had the smell of their aftershave from that morning. This gives us a great type here of God's protection of the 144,000 sealed Jews during the Great Tribulation. Remember, there are a lot of images here, types that are, are, are foreshadowing what will happen during the Great Tribulation. And we talked about this again last week. Now, these guys are a type of, of Israel preserved through the tribulation. Where's Daniel? He's gone. He becomes a type for us of the church, missing, gone from the scene because the church is raptured away before any part of the great tribulation. But the 144,000 there, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, 144,000 faithful Jewish men who believe in the Lord 
perfectly protected. Nothing can hurt them. Nothing can harm them. Even though the Antichrist, Nebuchadnezzar is a picture for us of the Antichrist, he's throwing everything he can at them, unleashing his you know, impressive fury and fire all over the world, and yet uh, nothing can touch them. So a great foreshadowing of what we read in uh, uh, the book of Revelation. Now, verse 28 says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar is such an interesting character. It's only going to get more fun (laughs) the next few studies here, but he's progressed a little bit here since chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, he had his dream. Daniel interprets his dream, and he has a couple things to say about God. Nebuchadnezzar does. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar, effectively, you can page back, and he just says, wow, your God knows some stuff. That's kind of neat. He he tells people things. And now he's progressed a little bit, right? His declaration's a bit greater. It's a bit fuller. God's working on his heart. God's chasing after Nebuchadnezzar, the most wicked man in all the world. God was chasing after him. And you know what? God was going to get him. And we'll see that uh, coming up here. But then he had to go and ruin it in verse 29. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there's no other God who can deliver like this. Nebuchadnezzar assumes that God is essentially like him, like the king of Babylon. Give me my lip service or I'm going to cut you apart, right? Uh, He assumes that God wants to rule through intimidation rather than personal tendership and personal connection. What we actually see in this story is that the Lord of heaven wants to be honored, not the way Nebuchadnezzar is setting up here. He wants to be honored the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego honored him. And now simply, hey, we trust you. We trust you, Lord. We don't have to make a big show. We, we just trust you. We're going to do what you want. That's what God was excited about. That's the kind of life the Lord uses. He's not looking for lip service. He's looking for our hearts, and he's looking for trust in our hearts. Verse 30, and the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Seems like a great ending until you sort of realize, wait a minute. That means they just go back to work for this guy with these Chaldeans who wanted to get them killed. Remember last time these Chaldeans have been watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They know that they're servants of the Most High God. They know they're not going to bow down to this image. And so they're watching, they're watching, they're watching. The music starts, there it is. Go report it to the king. And they tip their hand and they reveal that they're jealous of the fact that these guys got uh, promoted over them. And does Nebuchadnezzar transfer them out to another province so that they can smooth things over? He says, no, you guys are staying right here. You're going to come back to work for me. You're going to be working with these guys. And remember how they were mad about how you were promoted? Now you're promoted again. I wonder if they're more mad about it. Probably. And so their co-workers had been mad. They're promoted again. And sure, Nebuchadnezzar is a little closer to understanding who God is, but he's not saved yet. He's still a madman and a tyrant and a killer. And you know what? They woke up the next morning and went back to work. I don't think any of us can say, you know what happened to me at work today, honey? My boss shot me in the face. (laughs) Somehow the Lord delivered me from that, but anyway, I got to go do a a double shift tomorrow. I got to go back to work. Did your boss get arrested? No. No, in fact, I'm working. I'm his assistant now. Okay. And that's what happened. I mean, put yourself in this situation. 
You're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is your boss. These are your co-workers. And you went to work the next day after being in a fiery furnace. That's amazing faith. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had said there in verse 29, there's no other God who can deliver like this. God, that's your idea of deliverance? I guess, I don't know, if we're being honest, wouldn't you rather have the kind of deliverance like the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea that he piled up the waters we get through, he closes the waters, all the bad guys are gone, and whew, we're good to go now. And sometimes God brings that kind of deliverance to the storms of life and to the trials of life. And sometimes this is his idea of deliverance. Yeah, you know what you guys are going to do? You're going to stand. And you're going to withstand all the fury of the world. And you're going to go into the fire. And then when you come out of the fire, your enemies are still going to be there and you're still going to be among them. And you're still going to serve them and you're still going to serve me and be my representatives to these very people. You're still going to let me work through you among this same group of people who want to get you killed. This is an amazing thing. So what's your idea of deliverance? What's my idea of deliverance? Go even a little wider. What's your idea of the Lord and his work? You know, the scriptures reveal God to be a God of power, a God of peace, a God of provision, a God who works and moves and leads his people, a God who broadcasts his glory and his grace through the lives of his servants, right? We know that. Well, passages like this one, which inspire us so much, also invite us to then take a look at whether or not this is how God is actually operating in my life. So we see that from, a, uh, from one perspective, I mean, the callings of men like Moses or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or the, the disciples, I mean, they had particular callings, particular opportunities and situations, right? But the way God does things is the same, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's before the nation of Israel is established or during the exile period or there in the uh, you know, first century, in the idea that God works through his people and through their circumstances to reveal himself, reveal who he is. Through all of this, what did Nebuchadnezzar say? He says, hey man, your God is a deliverer just like you said he was. I saw it with my own eyes. That's the idea. Now, we don't face a daily threat of martyrdom, but we look in the Bible and we say, listen, is there any servant of God in the Bible who the Lord came to and said, okay, you're my child, you're my servant, and for you I've decided that nothing's going to happen in your life. I'm not going to grow you, I'm not going to use you, I'm not going to put you on display, I'm not going to preach through you, and we're not going to do nothing. We know each other now. I'll see you when you die and you'll go to heaven. There's no servant of God like that in the Bible. In fact, we see that God uses every kind of person in every sort of place in all generations to reveal himself and to accomplish his work, right? He uses shepherds. He uses farmers. He uses kings and academics. He uses government officials and household servants. He uses poets and business owners, fishermen and soldiers, moms and children, prisoners and conquerors, poor people, rich people, strong people, weak people. He uses all those people, every single one of them. He says, yeah, what's your life? What's your situation? Yeah, I scattered you into history and throughout the world so that I could broadcast who I am through your life. 
not just through verbal preaching, but through the circumstances of your life as I work in your life and as you demonstrate these truths about who I am, that I am a God of provision, that I am a God of peace, that I am a God of power and all these other things. That's what he does. That's his big idea. In a sense, Nebuchadnezzar's blasphemous statement there in verse 15, who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, that's why we're on the earth. That's why when we are saved, we aren't immediately taken into heaven, right? Because the Lord says, yeah, you're going to stay here and you're going to show people who I am, what kind of God I am. And the Lord used the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to answer his statement, right? He asked the question, who's the God? And then the Lord said, oh, I'm going to answer you and I'm going to answer you through the lives of these three guys right now. Who's the God who forgives sins? Who is the God who redeems? Who's the God who heals the brokenhearted? Who's the God who restores? Who's the God that gives endurance, strength for suffering? Who's the God who overcomes and transforms and empowers and loves? Who's the God that makes all these claims that the Bible makes? Well, the answer is delivered through us, through our words and through our days. That's God's big idea. That's his idea of action and deliverance. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can be confident in that. Say, yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. I don't know exactly where you're going to lead me today, but wherever it is, it's good, and I'm in. Lord, use me. Here I am. Send me.